Chapter 7, Parts 1 to 4 of The Passionate Friends by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Chapter the Seventh Beginning Again. 1. In operas and romances, one goes from such a parting in a splendid dignity of gloom. But I am no hero, and I went down the big staircase of Tarvril's house, the empty shock of an abandoned desire. I was acutely ashamed of my recent tears. In the center of the hall was a marble figure swathed about with yellow muslin. On account of the flies, I said, breaking our silence. My words were far too unexpected for Tarvril to understand. The flies, I repeated, with an air of explanation. You're sure she'll be all right, I said abruptly. You've done the best thing you can for her. I suppose I have. I have to go. And then I saw ahead of me a world full of the tiresome need of decisions and arrangements and empty of all interest. Where the devil am I to go, Tarvril? I can't even get out of things altogether. And then, with a fresh realization of painful difficulties ahead, I have to tell this to my father. I've got to explain. And he thought, he expected. Tarvril opened the half of the heavy front door for me, hesitated, and came down the broad steps into the chilly gray street, and a few yards along the pavement with me. He wanted to say something that he found difficult to say. When at last he did find words, they were quite ridiculous in substance, and yet at the time I took them as gravely as he intended them. "'It's no good quoting Marcus Aurelius,' said Tarfrill, to a chap with his finger in the crack of a door. "'I suppose it isn't,' I said. "'One doesn't want to be a flatulent ass, of course,' said Tarfrill. "'Still!' He resumed with an air of plunging. "'It will sound just rot to you now, Stratton, but after all it comes to this. Behind us is a situation with half a dozen particular persons. Out here, I mean here, round the world. Before you've done with them, there's a thousand million people, men and women.' "'Oh, what does that matter to me?' said I. "'Everything,' said Tarfril. "'At least it ought to.' He stopped and held out his hand. "'Good-bye, Stratton. Good luck to you. Good-bye.' "'Yes,' I said. "'Good-bye.' I turned away from him. The image of Mary, crying as a child cries, suddenly blinded me and blotted out the world. Two. I want to give you as clearly as I can some impression of the mental states that followed this passion and this collapse. It seems to me one of the most extraordinary aspects of all that literature of speculative attack which is called psychology, that there is no name and no description at all of most of the mental states that make up life. 
psychology, like sociology, is still largely in the scholastic stage. It is ignorant and intellectual, a happy refuge for the lazy industry of pedants. Instead of experience and accurate description and analysis, it begins with the rash assumption of elements and starts out upon ridiculous syntheses. Who with a sick soul would dream of going to a psychologist? Now here I was, with a mind sore and inflamed. I did not clearly understand what had happened to me. I had blundered, offended, entangled myself, and I had no more conception than a beast in a bog what it was had got me, or the method, or even the need of escape. The desires and passionate excitements, the anger and stress and strain and suspicion of the last few months, had worn deep grooves in my brain, channels without end or issue, out of which it seemed impossible to keep my thoughts. I had done dishonorable things, told lies, abused the confidence of a friend. I kept wrestling with these intolerable facts. If some momentary distraction released me for a time, back I would fall presently, before I knew what was happening, and find myself scheming once more to reverse the accomplished, or eloquently restating things already intolerably over-discussed in my mind justifying the unjustifiable or avenging defeat. I would dream again and again of some tremendous appeal to Mary, some violent return and attack upon the situation. One very great factor in my mental and moral distress was the uncertain values of nearly every aspect of the case. There is an invincible sense of wild rightness about passionate love that no reasoning and no training will ever altogether repudiate. I had a persuasion that out of that I would presently extract a magic to excuse my deceits and treacheries and assuage my smarting shame. And round these deep central preoccupations were others of acute exasperation and hatred towards secondary people. There had been interventions, judgments upon insufficient evidence, comments, and often quite justifiable comments, that had filled me with an extraordinary savagery of resentment. I had a persuasion, illogical but invincible, that I was still entitled to all the respect due to a man of unblemished honor. I clung fiercely to the idea that to do dishonorable things isn't necessarily to be dishonorable. This state of mind I am describing is, I am convinced, the state of every man who has involved himself in any affair at once questionable and passionate. He seems free, but he is not free. He is the slave of the relentless paradox of his position and we were all of us, more or less, in deep grooves we had made for ourselves. Philip, Guy, Justin, the friends involved, and all, in the measure of our grooves, incapable of tolerance or sympathetic realization. Even when we slept, 
the clenched fist of the attitudes we had assumed gave a direction to our dreams. You see, the same string of events that had produced all this system of intense preoccupations had also severed me from the possible resumption of those wider interests out of which our intrigue had taken me. I had had to leave England, and all the political beginnings I had been planning, and to return to those projects now, those now impossible projects, was to fall back promptly into hopeless exasperation. And then the longing, the longing that is like a physical pain, that hunger of the heart for someone intolerably dear. The desire for a voice, the arrested habit of phrasing one's thoughts, for a hearer who will listen in peace no more. From that lonely distress, even rage, even the concoction of insult and conflict, was a refuge. From that pitiless travail of emptiness, I was ready to turn desperately to any offer of excitement and distraction. From all those things, I was to escape at last unhelped. But I want you to understand particularly these phases through which I passed. It falls to many, and it may fall to you, to pass through such a period of darkness and malign obsession. Make the groove only a little deeper, a little more unclimbable. Make the temperament a little less sanguine, and suicide stares you in the face. And things worse than suicide, that suicide of self-respect, which turns men to drugs and inflammatory vices, and the utmost outrageous defiance of the dreaming noble self that has been so despitefully used. Into these same inky pools I have dipped my feet, where other men have drowned. I understand why they drown. And my taste of misdeed and resentment has given me just an inkling of what men must feel who go to prison. I know what it is to quarrel with the world. 3. My first plan when I went abroad was to change my Harbury French, which was poor stuff and pedantic, into a more colloquial article, and then go into Germany to do the same thing with my German, and then perhaps to remain in Germany, studying German social conditions, and the quality of the German army. It seemed to me that when the term of my exile was over I might return to England and re-enter the army. But all these were very anemic plans, conceived by a tired mind, and I set about carrying them out in a mood of slack lassitude. I got to Paris, and in Paris I threw them all overboard and went to Switzerland. I remember very clearly how I reached Paris. I arrived about sunset, I suppose at Saint-Lazare or the Gare du Nord, sent my luggage to the little hotel in the Rue d'Antin where I had taken rooms, and, dreading their loneliness, decided to go direct to a restaurant and dine. I remember walking out into the streets, just as shops and windows and street lamps were beginning to light up, and strolling circuitously 
through the clear, bright stir of the Parisian streets, to find a dinner at the Café des Lapins. Some day you will know that peculiar, sharp, definite excitement of Paris. All cities are exciting, and each, I think, in a different way. And as I walked down along some boulevard towards the centre of things, I saw a woman coming along a side street towards me, a woman with something in her body and something in her carriage that reminded me acutely of Mary. Her face was downcast, and then as we converged she looked up at me, not with the meretricious smile of her class, but with a steadfast, friendly look. Her face seemed to me sane and strong. I passed and hesitated. An extraordinary impulse took me. I turned back. I followed this woman across the road, and a little way along the opposite pavement. I remember I did that, but I do not remember clearly what was in my mind at the time. I think it was a vague rush towards the flash of companionship in her eyes. There I had seemed to see the glimmer of a refuge from my desolation. Then came amazement and reaction. I turned about and went on my way, and saw her no more. But afterwards, later, I went out into the streets of Paris, bent upon finding that woman. She had become a hope, a desire. I looked for her for what seemed a long time, half an hour perhaps, or two hours. I went along, peering at the women's faces, through the blazing various lights, the pools of shadowy darkness, the flickering reflections and transient glitter, one of a vast stream of slow-moving, adventurous human beings. I crossed streams of traffic, paused at luminous kiosks, became aware of dim rows of faces looking down upon me from above the shining enamel of the omnibuses. My first intentness upon one person, so that I disregarded any distracting intervention, gave place by insensible degrees to a more general apprehension of the things about me. That original woman became, as it were, diffused. I began to look at the men and women sitting at the little tables behind the panes of the cafés and even on the terraces, for the weather was still dry and open. I scrutinized the faces I passed, faces for the most part animated by a sort of shallow eagerness. Many were ugly, many vile with an intense vulgarity, but some in that throng were pretty, some almost gracious. There was something pathetic and appealing for me in this great sweeping together of people into a little light into a weak community of desire for joy and eventfulness. There came to me a sense of tolerance, of fellowship, of participation. From an outer darkness of unhappiness, or at least of joylessness, they had all come hither, as I had come. I was like a creature that slips back again towards some deep waters out of which long since it came into the light and air. It was as if old forgotten things, prenatal experiences, 
some magic of ancestral memories urged me to mingle again with this unsatisfied passion for life about me. Then, suddenly, a wave of feeling between self-disgust and fear poured over me. This vortex was drawing me into deep and unknown things. I hailed a passing fiacre, went straight to my little hotel, settled my account with the proprietor, and caught a night train for Switzerland. All night long my head ached, and I lay awake, swaying and jolting and listening to the rhythms of the wheels, Paris clean forgotten so soon as it was left, and my thoughts circling continually about Justin and Philip and Mary and the things I might have said and done. 4. One day late in February I found myself in Vevey. I had come down with the break-up of the weather from Montana, where I had met some Oxford men I knew and had learned to ski. I had made a few of those vague acquaintances one makes in a winter sport hotel. But now all these people were going back to England, and I was thrown back upon myself once more. I was dull and angry and unhappy still, full of self-reproaches and dreary indignations. And then, very much as the sky will sometimes break surprisingly through storm-clouds, there began in me a new series of moods. They came to me by surprise. One clear, bright afternoon I sat upon the wall that runs along under the limes by the lake shore, envying all these people who were going back to England and work and usefulness. I thought of myself, of my career spoiled, my honor tarnished, my character tested and found wanting. So far as English politics went, my prospects had closed forever. Even after three years, it was improbable that I should be considered by the party managers again. And besides, it seemed to me I was a man crippled. My other self, the mate and confirmation of my mind, had gone from me. I was no more than a mutilated man. My life was a thing condemned. I had joined the ranks of loafing, morally limping English exiles. I looked up. The sun was setting. A warm glow fell upon the dissolving mountains of Savoy and upon the shining mirror of the lake. The luminous, tranquil breadth of it caught me and held me. I am done for. The light upon the lake and upon the mountains, the downward swoop of a bird over the water, and something in my heart gave me the lie. What nonsense! I said, and felt as if some dark cloud that had overshadowed me had been thrust back. I stared across at Savoy, as though the land had spoken. Why should I let all my life be ruled by the blunders and adventures of one short year of adventure? Why should I become the votary of a train of consequences? What had I been dreaming of all this time? Over there were gigantic uplands I had never seen and trodden, and beyond were great plains and cities, and beyond that the sea, 
and so on, great spaces and multitudinous things, all round about the world. What did the things I had done, the things I had failed to do, the hopes crushed out of me, the tears and the anger, matter to that? And in some amazing way, this thought so took possession of me, that the question seemed also to carry with it the still more startling collateral. What then did they matter to me? Come out of yourself, said the mountains and all the beauty of the world. Whatever you have done or suffered is nothing to the inexhaustible offer life makes you. We are you, just as much as the past is you. It was as though I had forgotten, and now remembered, how infinitely multitudinous life can be. It was as if Tarfril's neglected words to me had sprouted in the obscurity of my mind and borne fruit. I cannot explain how that mood came. I am doing my best to describe it. And it is not easy even to describe. And I fear that to you, who will have had, I hope, no experience of such shadows as I had passed through, it is impossible to convey its immense elation. I remember once I came in a boat out of the caves of Han after two hours in the darkness, and there was the common daylight that is nothing wonderful at all, and its brightness ahead there seemed like trumpets and cheering, like waving flags and like the sunrise. And so it was with this mood of my release. There is a phrase of Peter E. Noyes, that queer echo of Emerson, whom people are always rediscovering and forgetting again, a phrase that sticks in my mind. Every living soul is heir to an empire, and has fallen into a pit. It's an image wonderfully apt to describe my change of mental attitude, and render the contrast between those intensely passionate personal entanglements that had held me tight and that wide estate of life that spreads about us all, open to all of us, in just the measure that we can scramble out of our individual selves, to a more general self. I seemed to be hanging there at the brim of my stale and painful den, staring at the unthought-of greatness of the world, with an unhoped-for wind out of heaven blowing upon my face. I suppose the intention of the phrase finding salvation, as religious people use it, is very much this experience. If it is not the same thing, it is something very closely akin. It is as if someone were scrambling out of a pit into a largeness, a largeness that is attainable by every man just in the measure that he realizes it is there. I leave these fine discriminations to the theologian. I know that I went back to my hotel in Vevey with my mind healed, with my will restored to me, and my ideas running together into plans. And I know that I had come out that day, a broken and apathetic man. End of chapter 7, parts 1 to 4